Clear. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house that's right we got skywriters now we got skywriters now sky does that say ucap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're on site clear land Turkey Central Ground, good afternoon, sir. Taxi via Foxtrot and Alpha. So, aircraft power plants. Um, I, I don't know what to make of this story. Uh, on one level, this is fascinating. On another level, it's like, huh? A jet-powered glider. They've put a jet engine on a glider. Mm-hmm. And, and originally they did this because it was an air show stunt. But according to this story that I found, let's see what this story is. This is a, it was from Abweb, so it must be true, right? Uh, that was a joke. Uh, jet-powered glider completes test flight. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but I think what it said was, uh, although originally this was an air show stunt, they're actually thinking about making this a product. You guys know anything about this? What's the deal? I, I, I've seen the, the the aircraft, the stun aircraft at Air Show. I'll probably yeah. get Usher or Sun Fun, one of the two. Um, it's you know okay. It's it's kind of loud for a sailplane. If you think about it. sailplanes, generally don't make a whole lot of noise. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Um, but um, it, there are an, any number of other uh, uh, motor gliders. Is perhaps the correct term for them. Self launching gliders is, is another term. Any number of them out there with with engines. Um, uh, Diamond used to make one. I've flown it before. Uh, I think they're trying to maybe revive that. There's, uh, um, you have engines in the in the nose. The the, the blades uh, either feather mm-hmm. uh, or they can retract. You have uh, another glider with has a an engine on a pylon behind the cockpit that literally extends up into the uh, slipstream. And then you when you're finished with it, you 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 retract it back down and close a little compartment, and boom, you've got a sailplane again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but those, but those are little engines. Those are, those are some, little of, some of those are hardly this, bigger than RC aircraft engines. Right? This, this is, is a jet a, this, engine. Yeah, this is a little jet engine, though. Well, okay, okay. that's like saying um, it's a. I don't know. This is not a you know a CFM six or something powering a triple seven. <laughs> but uh, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> well, it, once, yeah, it'd be cool. Really, really cool once. Yeah. Um, but this, it's going to need a is, lot bigger sailplane. Yeah, exactly. Um, this TJ100 jet engine, I don't know what the specs are on it, but I would guess it's about the size of a pony keg uh, and uh, um, uh, has, you know, a, a thrust rating that is, is perhaps in three digits and um, uh, maybe maybe not even three digits. I don't know. Uh-huh. Uh, all we need is just enough power to get this sailplane rolling and, and there's a 56-foot wingspan. Um, I don't know. It's a two-seat sailplane. So I would guess it probably needs maybe 30 knots to get flying. Um, uh, I don't know. It, it, don't, just it's, because it's a, quote, turbine or jet engine doesn't mean that it's uh, a big thing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's still going to suck a lot of gas, I would think, though. Teach. Well, that's yeah. That's where, where are you going to put enough fuel to make that useful for anything other than self-launch? I guess you could put it in the water ballast tanks. Yeah. yeah. But you need uh, water in the water ballast tanks. 
Well, only if you want to fly heavy. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, and sometimes you do. You don't want to. You don't want right. to. You don't want to. You know, repurpose the the water ballast tanks to be fuel because then you don't have water ballast. I, I don't know. <laughs> the jet engine is this story says the jet engine makes sense for a glider because it is quote small, lightweight, and simple end quote says test pilot Bob Carlton. Uh, the bonus jet they're calling it a bonus jet will be on display next month at EAA AirVenture. So I. It does. It does solve the problem. Where do you put the propeller? It does, it, it, and, and and that's you know a very good observation. Actually, uh, I, I managed to Google while we're talking here the the engine manufacturer here, which is PBS, and they're uh, I'm guessing Czechoslovakia or, or uh, one of the the uh, eastern yeah, well, Europe, the, European countries. Right. Um, um, static thrust is 225 uh, pound feet. Wow. Um, is that a lot or a little? That's Maybe. that's that's not that's not small. Okay, it's not small. No, um, outside diameter is ten point seven inches. Length is nineteen inches. Its weight with accessories is forty one pounds. I want one. Well, it's the same engine that uh, uh, that uh, is being used on the uh, Sonex Subsonex uh, jet. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, that that's really tiny, but it's a huge amount of thrust for the weight. Yeah. I mean, gee, many you're getting five, almost six pounds of thrust per pound of weight. Uh, certainly as compact as any internal combustion operation that you could rig up, particularly when you have to add, uh, you know, a propeller and maybe a reduction drive. Uh, it just does seem kind of incongruous, the idea of mating jet thrust with a sailplane but like Jed said, Jeb said when you think about the the, 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 the reason it's purposed uh, it makes a lot of sense plus if you buy an engine from those folks at PBS you get a bonus tote bag and a coffee mug <laughs> <laughs> yes. okay. and you might get your name read on the air yeah, uh, that's right um, yeah, well, uh, the, specs, the spec sheet says the fuel consumption for this is less than um, 281 pounds per hour. Um, and, and just quickly here, doing the math, um, you're looking at um, uh, 24 maybe or so gallons uh, uh, an hour uh, at full chat on this thing. You don't need all 24 gallons uh, yeah. uh, to run to, to take off and climb to altitude and then shut the thing down and, 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 and soar around for a while. Um, so I, that's still a lot of fuel to carry on a, on a glider. Um, you know, 280 pounds for, for an hour's fuel. Um, I, I don't know. Um, um, I still like to have one, and I, you know, figure out a way to mount it on a motorcycle or something. I don't know. Oh, is that what you will do? For? Okay. Uh, yeah, I was all wondering what you were going to do with it. There are all kinds of things I would want to do with one of these. Right? Yeah, well, Je- Jeb's going to strap one under each wing of the Debbie so he can open up the crosswind grass runway at Hidden River again. There you go. There you go. That's right. That's right. Anyways, well, okay, jet engine on a glider, I guess. I don't know. We'll see. We're going to see it in Oshkosh, so we'll check it out. We'll report back. Hey, welcome, folks, to episode 191 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. 
recording this episode on, uh, you know, we're all a little groggy this morning. I'm pretty sure it's Friday, June 11th. Is that correct? Uh, That's correct. Yeah. Friday, June 11th, 2010. All and, day. Uh, joining us all day. And joining us, joining me here in the virtual hangar is, uh, first of all, Dave Higdon's out there. He's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hey, David, how are you? Finer and Frog here, and looking forward to the weekend. Hope everybody's doing well out there. Yeah. So, and it's even earlier for you. You, why do you sound like the most bright-eyed and bushy-tailed of the three of us? I don't understand. That's because I put the uh, IV needle hooked to the caffeine bag in before I went to bed last night. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> the liberal application of medication is what it what what it's all about. Also here in the virtual hangar is Jeb Burnside, who's talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How are you doing? Jeff? I'm good. I'm good. I, uh, but how are you doing? That's what we're talking about right now. <laughs> I, I'm missing my IV. Uh, yeah, I know. I can't find the right, um, um, the right needle. I don't understand this. For for years, in the early days of the podcast, back in the uh, in the late fifties, uh, <laughs> we used to do this. We used to do this in the morning all the time, and it seemed to work just fine. We only went to evenings, Jeb, when you went out and got yourself a real job, which we always knew was a mistake. All right, but you did it anyways. Um, and I, uh, I have no, no comment on any of this. And now that now that you've returned to the freelance lifestyle, like the rest of us, uh, we we've gone back to mornings, and uh, and both you and I are having a little bit of a hard time with it. I don't understand. Well, I, I you know, I, I was out last night. Oh, uh, that's right. <laughs> so, some people hanging out uh, with the Harley chicks again, huh? Ha- hanging out with the neighbors, and um, um, I think beer was involved. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't recall. Uh huh. Uh huh. And it wasn't even the Friday night party yet. And it was not even the Friday night party uh, yet. I'm. You uh, know, I've been down there a few times now, and the Friday night party is just. You know. It's just another iteration of the Thursday night party and the Wednesday <laughs> night party and the well, Tuesday night party. Which uh, kind of gives you the theme here, doesn't it? Yeah. But yeah, so. uh, now Lee got in yesterday. Uh-huh. And, um, his daughter's coming in. Actually, he's off. Uh, Lee, uh, the, 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 ma- the, the, ma- excuse me, the, the, the satanic, the man, mechanic. the man in black, the satanic, satanic mechanic. mechanic. Yep. Okay. Uh, he's, he's in town, got in town yesterday. His daughter's flying in. Um, for the weekend, he's out picking her up right now. Um, and we have, um, you know, kind of a, a little get together planned uh, with with both of them tonight. Tomorrow, um, in in the um, uh, in the theme of pancake breakfasts. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a gentleman who lives, I don't know, a quarter mile or so from me, around the corner here. Uh, he is a big uh, Corvette Chevrolet Corvette uh, guru. Works on them, tweaks them up. Um, people come from literally miles around to, um, you know, get him to work on their Corvettes. Well, he's having a little Corvette soiree in the morning, a little pancake. Oh, breakfast. very cool. Mm-hmm. Corvette club, and, and there's going to be a lot of people show up. I'm going to, you know, roll the BMW over there just for grins. I'm piss them off. Huh? Yeah, just, <laughs> just, just for annoyance factor. <laughs> uh, and then um, uh, Dave Whitman. Um, who both of you know? Yeah. Um, um, we're having a birthday party for him tomorrow night. Oh, awesome! Tell him I so. It's happy, Sunday happy, will happy. be. I will. Sunday will be like you know recoup day. Um, Sounds um, like it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we probably would do well not to plan on doing this again on Monday morning. 
Uh, I was gonna maybe say something off the off the uh, episode. Off <laughs> okay, the record, off we'll talk here. about that when nobody's listening. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm talking to you from the UCAP summer headquarters, high atop Lookout Point, here in the home of three Civil War generals, Nottingham, New Hampshire. Lookout. Yeah, lookout. Lookout. I was talking to uh, who was I talking? Oh, I was talking to Mike Morgan the other day, and uh, and he made mention. He, we were talking about my living situation right now, and he made he described where I was living. He says, "Now that you're living up there in the mountains, apparently, I by describing it as high atop Lookout Point, I've given people the impression that I live in the mountains, which is not exactly correct. High, look, lookout Point is all of like 25 feet above the surrounding terrain. Um, nevertheless, I am high atop Lookout Point." Um, Ooh, so what were we talking about? Um, so you're having parties down at Hidden River. That's good. Um, you're going to piss off the the uh, the uh, Corvette guy. Uh, well, I'm, I'm just you know we just have to make sure he stays in his place. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to like drive in front of his house and you're going to gun the engine. Right? Oh, I'm going to pull that sucker right up in front and park it. Okay. Go get a pancake. <laughs> but they're going to charge you for the pancake. I don't know. Well, that's okay. It'll be, you know, yeah. Depending on how much it is, it might be worth it. The Corvette people, of course, are another customer for the little glider jet. Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. So, uh, yeah. You can put that in there. Anyways, all right, aviation. Oh, yeah, we were going to talk about airplanes. Let's see. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. David, uh, okay, uh, so you, you, you I have, didn't do it. You have called our attention to a video, but it's a cool video. So uh, yeah, um, it's a video. Uh, actually, I saw this. Video. Did did we talk about this on the podcast? I know I've seen this podcast before. This is that. Uh, what's that TV show? Top Gear. Is this the Top Gear guy? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like a British TV show, and this guy goes off and looks at all sorts of high powered cars and whatnot and and that's the guy who got the ride in the u2 in this video well i would have to watch it again to affirm the top gear status but i do know that it uh, was a british program british talent uh an american u2 uh and flight crew and it's a 10 minute video uh, with multiple cameras mounted in the aircraft and the uh British television guy uh, who's in the back, the elevated back seat of this particular YouTube, shooting more video with the handheld. Uh, it's about ten minutes long. If you've ever had any uh, interest in what flying that big bird, the Dragon Lady, is is, is going to be like, uh, this will give you a little bit of an insight into it. Uh, haven't seen them at Oshkosh uh, and up close at a couple of other uh, undisclosed locations. They they just fascinate the hell out of me. I mean, this is a 50-plus-year-old design uh-huh. well, that's still at the top of its game. Right. Okay. Is that why it fascinates you? Why else does it fascinate you? Well, it's a single engine, uh, centerline gear. Uh, it's got this outrageous performance envelope. Uh, it lands at very low airspeeds, but cruises at very high airspeeds. It cruises at very high altitude. And when it's in cruise, the margin between, in pitch, between an overspeed angle of attack and a stall angle of attack is down to just a handful of knots. Right. That's the thing that's always struck me about this aircraft is, uh, is that the, the narrowness of the envelope when they're up there at their performance altitude. Um, um, and any aircraft that can climb that high and, and, and you know be in the mocks uh, uh, when it does so, if it you know, 
you can take a, a 727 and, and you get it to, at the right altitude, it's going to have a very, very narrow margin between mock over speed and stall. Um, the U2 just happens to fly at that, you know, A, routinely, B, on purpose. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically the U2 is a, um, a glider. It's a big-ass glider. Uh, with one, it's a jet-powered glider. Oh, my God. We, we, were, we were just talking about, you know, obviously. That's right. Slightly, slightly different engineering, slightly different uh, uh, purpose in mind. But the wings, the, the, the way the airplane is designed, is, is designed and optimized for high altitude. You don't see this thing, you know, hanging out. You don't see U2s bopping by at 15 or, you know, uh, or in the, in the 20s or anything like that. Well, you do, but they don't pass you horizontally. They... Yeah, well, you know, you, you don't see them cruising at those, at those yeah. flight levels. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they want 50, 60. You know, I mean, I'm sure the ceiling is, is higher than that and, and also classified, but... Uh, um, that's where they perform. That's what they were designed for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when it comes to just sipping gas at that level. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It goes forever. Uh, and then bringing it back down is this fine-edged balancing act. Mm-hmm. And because of how flat its glide ratio is, uh, uh, getting it back on the ground, you get really slow. There's not great forward visibility with all that nose. Uh, and then you know, you touch down at uh, I don't know about a hundred knots, maybe a little less, and uh, a lot less than that actually. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's quite a bit less. And there was one shot in the, from one of the cockpit cameras. Uh, there are several shots where you see the uh, uh, the primary flight display and the altimeter tape just spooling up, nice, uh-huh. smooth, and steady. And there was one shot where they level off at, at flight level seven zero zero, flight level seven zero zero, and the indicated airspeed is 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 just just hovering right around a hundred knots indicated, and I'm going, man, that's got to be screaming. I mean, if you're getting almost a hundred knots indicated at seventy thousand feet, uh, I didn't get the whiz wheel out to figure it out. I figured the whiz wheel would look at me and go. No, no, you never fly that high. Yeah. Uh-huh. Jeb, uh, having flown with you a few times, Jeb, I know that you select cruise altitudes basically uh, uh, for winds. Uh-huh. H- how high would you fly the Debbie comfortably, you know, all other things being equal? I've had it to 15 uh, on several occasions. Uh-huh. Um, it, it starts to get a little What does sluggy. the POH say the ceiling is? There isn't one um, because of the way uh, it was certificated. It was certificated under CAR 3 back in, which was, I don't know, 40s, 50s uh, era regulation. And they didn't have a certificated ceiling uh, for CAR 3. Um, The same airplane, well, excuse me, the A36, I believe. um, uh, Well, I I was going to say something. Um, Look at a a more recent uh, Part 23 certificated airplane, like maybe a Cirrus. And it comes with a uh, a um, uh, certification, a certified ceiling, um, maybe twenty five thousand feet. Uh, there are many practical limitations to uh, the Debbie's uh, ceiling, not least of which is uh, above twenty five thousand. You need RVSM, uh, and I'm not going to be getting RVSM on on the Debbie anytime soon. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, what's RVSM? Uh, reduced vertical separation minima. Um, uh, which requires um, highly accurate altimetry and, and navigation gear and autopilot gear. 
um, and mainly for the province of uh, biz jets and, and uh, jet transports. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you have that practical limit. You have also, um, you know, oxygen issues uh, at, at those altitudes that uh, you may or I don't have uh, the equipment uh, to go above 18 uh, safely, mm-hmm. uh, which requires um, uh, a mask and, and uh, different, slightly different oxygen gear. I just don't have. Right. So right. I mean, I have a I have a practical altitude limit of of uh, um, of 18,000, and I've not had the airplane that high above 13. Um, climb rate really starts to fall off. And, that's and, yeah, that's uh, what I was going to ask you. It's, so. not, it's not so much a struggle to get to 15. Uh, it is a rather leisurely event from, say, 13, from 12.5 or so to, to gotcha. 15. Gotcha. Uh, above 15, um, you're just going to start annoying people. Okay, uh, yeah. With, with your climb rate and, and um, with the uh, relatively lower true airspeed. I'm curious, a question for both of you. What's the highest altitude that you've been in a, let's, let's say, a piston non-pressurized aircraft? Uh, 25. You've really been to 25, really? I, we, I did a test, um, worked this out with Cirrus a few years back when I was still living in Virginia, um, one of their um, demo pilots swung through, swung through with a, um, an SR-22 with a turbo normalizing system on it. And this was a project for, for Aviation Consumer Magazine. Uh, we wanted to get uh, time to climb and, and some other data uh, on, the, um, on the turbo conversion of the SR-22. And so we took off out of um, Manassas and... Um, filed an IFR for, I don't know, Lynchburg or Roanoke or something like that, and, you know, filed for 250. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, oxygen was wide open, and, and I was in the right seat, and you know, writing down stuff, you know, left and right as we went, uh, as we started climbing. Um, I, was, I was very impressed with that airplane. Um, mm-hmm. We were doing, out of, out of 20,000 feet in the climb, we were indicating uh, some ungodly number of knots. I, I don't remember the exact details. I think we were indicating something like 140, 150, 160 knots. Mm. Indicating, not true. Right. Indicating that, that airspeed and still going up at 1,000 feet per minute. Really? That yeah, that's just bodacious, isn't it? Yeah. yeah just, that was at a flight level 200. And uh, uh, we got to, to 250 and stayed there a few minutes and started coming back down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was rather interesting to do that. Uh, um, highly recommended to you know clear the nasal passages, as it were. Um, but um, uh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and um, I don't know that I've. Uh, this was well before um, um, the podcast. We well before we started this podcast. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, thanks to uh, to Cirrus for making that happen. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, David. What's the highest altitude you've been in a in, in a in a Piston, piston unpressurized? Piston, yeah, piston non-pressurized. Uh, 230, uh, and it was in a uh, Mooney TLS Bravo, uh, flying left seat for a uh, pilot report project. And uh, we did a direct two, and uh, took us 28 minutes to get to 230, uh, which is pretty freaking good for a piston yeah. airplane. Yeah, that's a turbocharged, dual turbocharged airplane. Uh, I've been to two five zero in some pressurized piston singles, uh, 
and uh, that's pretty interesting too. Uh, not all of them perform quite as well when you start to get on the high side of two zero zero in terms of climb performance. But uh, like Jeb said, it's 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 worth doing sometime if you're going to do these rapid climb things. Uh, boy, read any of the articles about Bruce Bohannon's uh, uh, travails when he was trying to do some time to climb records and mm-hmm. Alps, uh, absolute altitude records. Uh, we never got into the territories that Bruce did, but averaging almost a thousand feet a minute to two five zero, just under a thousand to two five zero. That first twelve or thirteen thousand feet, you're screaming up there almost faster than your ears can equalize. That's right. Yeah, and it can get damned uncomfortable if you're not chewing the gum really fast. And of course, you got the, uh, a mask on because we're going high enough that we got to go from cannulas to masks to be legal and to be safe. And uh, uh, and, you, and you get up there, and pitch sensitivity changes uh, a little bit, and uh, and then you get everything dialed in and leaned and settled out, and and look down, and oh my God, you're you're knots. doing 230 some odd knots. True, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just screaming through the sky. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I understand. I know that the physics tells us that things like pitch sensitivity changes, but can you really feel it? What's it like to fly an airplane that high up? Um, well, it, as I as I mentioned, actually, uh, I think at the top uh, of this particular segment, uh, it, my airplane gets a little mushy. Now I don't have a turbo. Um, so uh, at 15, um, airspeed indicated airspeed is down around. I don't know. It's been a while since I've done this, so I'm guessing you know 110, 120. Um, normally, I cruise that airplane at about 140, 145 indicated, which um, translates to uh, uh, 10, 11 thousand uh, feet somewhere in there. Um, full chat and uh, leaned appropriately, and, and uh, I'm scooting along about 170 knots. True, um, above 13. Well, at, at 13, I'm probably doing 165. The trade-off being, I'm burning a lot less fuel. Um, to go to 15 takes a little bit more gas, of course, but uh, obviously also my fuel burn is is a little bit lower, um, incrementally so. The only reason to go to 15 is to catch like a screaming tailwind. Yeah. Um, I'll go to 13 routinely, um, uh, even without a tailwind, depending on, you know, let's, let's you know, I, I am the king of, of headwinds, okay? Mm-hmm. Any, anytime I go somewhere, you can pretty much count on <laughs> there being a headwind. Mm-hmm. Yep. On those rare occasions where there isn't, I try to, you know, uh, climb up and, and figure out, you know, what's the, what's the best, uh, altitude for the airplane, best altitude for me, and, and the best altitude to catch some, some tailwind. In my book, um, the name of the game is ground speed. Uh, mm-hmm. When you're going something. Uh, and I've, I've you know, famously done, you know, some, some we've, we've talked about some of these longer, uh, hours-long flights and, and, you know, doing Houston to Manassas and Wichita to Manassas and things like that. Um, those are fairly easy uh, flights with the, with the tip tanks on the airplane. But to to get that, you need a little bit of help. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, least, at least to get that in the same day, yeah. you need a little bit of help. And um, you know, you do some pre-flight planning. You figure out what's going to be the best altitude. And you know, there's a lot of people who will, uh, you know, run a spreadsheet or run a computer program or or use a web-based service to. Well, I'm gonna 
you know, what between the fuel burn, the winds, and, and all this kind of thing. Well, my optimum altitude for this flight is going to be 11,733 feet. Well, good luck, you know, trying to maintain that for five hours. Um, so I just kind of eyeball it. And uh, often for me, higher is better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and that's one of the. That, that, it's, Jeb's just talking about people that plot this stuff out and then want to stick to their plan because that's the plan. Uh, sometimes miss out on the changes, things not being as forecast, or opportunities. Uh, I've had trips where I'm slogging along in a headwind, and you know the ground speed says, "Well, I'm going to be able to get there without stopping for fuel." But it's not going to be fast, and it's not going to be fun, and it's, the fuel's going to be down in the margins. Anything goes uh, hiccup, uh, I'm going to have to make a new decision to stay within my personal limitations. And then talk to or hear a, a, a guy give a pilot report to flight service and find out that, geez, if I go up 4,000 feet, I'm not going to get any better ground speed, but... I'm going to be able to maintain that ground speed on a couple of gallons an hour or less for the duration of the flight. Baby, I'm there. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get to my destination in the same time frame as down low or slogging it, but I'm going to get to my destination with a whole lot more go juice left in the tank, and it increases my margins for hiccups along the way. And, you know, had that happen, uh, have launched off and had a bodacious tailwind, only to find out that winds higher up were better than forecast. And if I go up another 4,000 feet, I can pick up another 20, 22 knots uh, and have the fuel burn go down a couple of gallons an hour. Baby, I'm there. I'm gone. Yeah. Crank up where, the O2. Where, where do I sign up? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, Interesting. Yeah. It's a 3D world we live in. You got to. Like Jeb said, though, he summed it up. Ground speed is the name of the game. You know, it, it, we, we can have these arguments all day long about what the optimal true airspeed is for fuel burn and all that. But at the end of the day, when you're going someplace, what makes the trip is ground speed. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, and finding the spot where you can optimize ground speed, that's what it's all about. And that's where... Um, we, and we've talked about instrumentation before. Um, that's where things like a, a, a dialed-in fuel totalizer comes in invaluable. Oh, huge! Oh, it's 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 just it's it's for me. So often, it's it's really primary for power. Um, I had an episode uh, here. I don't know a month or so ago. I was uh, um, on a flight, and I, I, by definition, since there's no fuel here at, at, at Hidden River. Um, I, you know, by definition, do not leave out of here with full tanks. Um, and then on this particular occasion, I had maybe, you know, an hour or two uh, burned out of my, out of my tanks. I was headed out to uh, um, the Midwest, <coughs> and uh, I'm droning along, and I, I kind of planned this fuel stop. And, and this was, Jack, the, where the world's mangiest dog is. Yep. I planned purposely to, to stop there for gas. And I landed, and I had uh, about 20 gallons on board. Now, I had more than that. Uh, I had about 30 gallons on board. Um, and um, taxied up to the pumps and shut down, and the guy meets me out there, and he says, oh, by the way, you, you, you do remember that we don't take credit cards. And I'm like, oh, crap. I left my checkbook at home. And uh, I said, look, I can't, you know, I don't have enough cash on me. 
And uh, I said, you know, I'll, I'll come back some other time. He says, hey, no problem. And launched out of there and um, got to cruising altitude and I and uh, played with uh, the fuel um, flow and, and time remaining and, and uh, gallons remaining and all this kind of stuff. And um, I had 30, I would have 30 minutes of fuel on board at my destination. And that was just not enough. It was uh, too tight. And um, I had uh, fortuitously printed out the, uh, the AirNav um, fuel bargains uh, sheet. It yeah. was like, mm-hmm. if you print the long version, it runs to like six or eight pages. And then it stuck that in my knapsack before I loaded the airplane and dug that out and thumbed through to the state I was flying over and, and figured out you know, where I was and where the, where the cheap fuel places in that state were. And, um, uh, hey, cool, there's one. You know, it's even cheaper than the place I just left. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it's, and it's uh, uh, 30 minutes ahead, you know, uh, 15 degrees off heading. Boom, I'm there. And, and told ATC and, and uh, uh, went direct and landed and, and topped off with, with a bunch of gas. And I was a little bit late for my destination, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, without that fuel totalizer telling me exactly what was going to happen and when, um, uh, I, I don't know what I would, I, I'd have stopped, uh, someplace else and paid a lot more for gas. That's one thing that I would have, that would have happened. But, uh, Oh yeah. The, the fuel totalizer in, you know, they can, they can be had for as a standalone, uh, capable of talking to even a portable GPS for six, 700 bucks, uh, a thousand when you get it installed. Uh, and it's worth its weight in in gold in terms of fuel management, and really drives home that this the other most important fuel management tool in the cockpit is your throttle, because when you're barreling along at high speed and it and the totalizer is telling you, yeah, you know, at this setting we're going to be down to thirty minutes. Like Jeb said, that's that's not enough. I, I, I don't like that. Yeah. I like showing up with 45 or a little better. Uh-huh. An hour is even happier. I, I like to see an hour. Uh, the, my pucker factor is a lot better at, at an hour because, um, okay, the weather's fine, yada, yada, yada. The winds, in, in, in this particular instance, actually the winds uh, started to help me the closer I got to my destination. And that's all well, you know, real well and good, but you can't count on that. But, um, you know, people laying gear up on your destination runway. Um, um, Maybe uh, uh, someone lost. Maybe some airplane lost a tire, and the runway's closed. Um, stuff happens, yep. and uh, you show up overhead your destination with thirty minutes gas, especially in some some rural areas around the country. Um, that's that's min fuel territory. That's that's uh, emergency declaration territory, and uh, uh, I try to avoid you know having to do that. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to be featured on off field landing of the week. You just don't. No, and and by pulling the the throttle back, pulling back the power a little bit, you know, it you can very quickly see the time you've got aloft and the distance you've got to go go up, even though the time to get there is going to go down, and that gives you some extra playing room for finding the option that's going to let you get the fuel that you need to to arrive in condition that guarantees you won't be coming off your landing yeah. of the week. And, and in, in all, uh, in, you know, in, 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 in a full disclosure, I did some of that when I got to altitude on this particular flight, you know, trying to figure out what I had fuel for and, 
and this kind of thing. I, I played with the RPM. I played with, uh, you know, running it leaner, running it richer, whatever. And, uh, the, you know, the numbers just were not going to work for me. I think I, I, I increased from 30 to 45 minutes reserve at, at destination. But, you know, sorry. Um, uh, right. Just, just doesn't work all that well. Yeah. And uh, discretion being the better part of valor. Stop. Get some gas. Yeah, right. And, oh. if, you, and if you look at the Air Safety Foundation reports, uh, you know, uh, fuel issues remain a big reason for getting fodder for off-field landing of the weeks and worse. Yeah. Well, and we, we've talked about this before also. You talk about, well, you know, is general aviation safe? Is, is it safe to fly a private airplane? Um, the quick answer is it's as safe as you make it. But um, presuming that the airplane is well-maintained, that the pilot uh, is, is well-trained and knows how to fly the airplane over the route selected, presuming the weather uh, is not just horrendous, um, and presuming um, uh, that everything else, you know, kind of sort of falls into place, um, the main thing that brings down these airplanes uh, when everything else is in, is nominal is lack of fuel on board. Mm-hmm. Period. End of statement. Yeah, yeah. So, um, speaking of different kinds of of challenges, uh, Jeb, since you moved to Florida, you kind of lucked out on the hurricane front. Um, yeah, I have. I have. There have been no, at least none in your neighborhood um, in the, what it's been, two, three years. How long have you been down there now? Jesus. Yeah, not quite three years. Labor yeah. Day. But there, uh, was a, there was a tropical storm uh, in 08 that uh, um, uh, got uncomfortably, un, uh, excuse me, uncomfortably right. close and uh, had me moving the airplane. Right. There was one time that you executed Operation Runaway, Runaway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that turned out to be a, a false alarm, but, uh, but it was nevertheless yeah, probably some, wise. Yeah. There was some rain and wind for a day and a half or so that uh, the got yeah. our attention. But uh, apparently, so they've just released a forecast for this uh, upcoming hurricane season, and they, they, but see, they've said this for the last couple of years. They're saying yet again that this is going to be a big hurricane season, right? Is that what they're saying, David? You called our attention to this story. Uh, WSI, the the nice folks that provide weather terminals that a lot of the FBOs we use, uh, which is, by the way, a weather channel company. Yeah, uh, they issued a hurricane forecast back in April, that said average hurricane year or maybe a little more. They updated it uh, a couple of weeks ago, late in May, uh, and now they say it's going to be a little above average. Uh, They predict, quote-unquote, hyperactive tropical season with magnified northeast U.S. threat. Now, we all know that this climatology and meteorology stuff is, is... has gotten a lot more accurate, and it's still not a precise science, particularly this long-range, how many storms and how intense. Uh, And they were off last year. Thankfully, it was not as bad as it had been forecast. Uh, This year, they're saying 10 hurricanes, 5 intense storms, uh, 18 named storms altogether. Uh, That's well above the long-term Averages of ten named storms, six hurricanes, and three intense hurricanes, uh, averaged out over the period of the last you know, just about sixty years. Uh, the reason I stuck this on the list is, you know, 
we pay attention to these things when they cook up in the Atlantic and we start to see the news stories and the Weather Channel people show up in the beach communities and, and all that. But it has some bearing on those of us that don't live in coastal areas because when these storms come cooking ashore, uh, they can turn into some of the meanest, nastiest uh, uh, tornadic weather that, uh, that that we see in Tornado Alley and has nothing to do with our normal tornado mechanics. It's just because of the strength of the storm. Uh, we need to pay attention to it to plan around it. We need to pay attention to it to know when not to go someplace or when to get the hell out of Dodge earlier than planned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea that they're saying it's going to be a higher than average storm system season, uh, that's neither here nor there for me as much as the idea that they're talking about some of these storms a little better than average being of the really intense nature, the kind that produce a Katrina-like storm. So mm-hmm. uh, it's just kind of a forewarning and one of those things that, you know, they're out there. They always make the news. But when there's one churning ashore sometime in this summer, and you've got a trip going someplace, take a couple extra minutes and look at what might happen when that storm makes landfall. Are you going to be on the wrong side of the system to try to get home when it makes landfall? Are you going to be in a position with your airplane to escape to safety with with the airplane? Uh, And then make sure that your insurance is paid up. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, In in, um, uh, just... The, the macro uh, weather uh, discussion uh, since uh, I'm looking at the, uh, the NOAA um, page, the NOAA hurricane, uh, um, that, whatever they call it, tropical uh, storm uh, page. And there's a link on that to their, their um, uh, prediction for the hurricane season. And the headline, of course, is NOAA expects busy Atlanta, Atlantic hurricane season. There's three factors here that they they use to um, ju- justify their forecast, which is similar to WSI's and, and every other weather organization in, in, in the country. Uh, three things. Uh, upper atmospheric winds are conducive for storms. And, and this is actually um, 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 because the winds are forecast to be lighter at upper altitudes. Um, the stronger winds help suppress storm development. Okay. And that's one of the factors uh, for the 09 season. Um, warm Atlantic Ocean water. Um, the average surface temperatures are, are a degree or two warmer. Um, in fact, I read somewhere um, that, uh, actually, I'm sorry, the, the NOAA site also says this. Is record warm temperatures up to four degrees Fahrenheit above average are present in the region. Um, yeah, uh, so that's, you know, uh, kind of a, quote, bad thing, unquote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and there's just a high activity era here. Uh, since 1995, according to NOAA, the tropical multi—I um, uh, can't even pronounce that word—has uh, has brought favorable ocean and atmospheric conditions in sync, leading to more active hurricane seasons. Eight of the last 15 seasons rank in the top 10 for the most named storms, with 2005 in first place with 28 names. I remember that because. They were run, starting to run out of names. They were yeah, didn't they, they? Yeah, they they had to they look around and or something. You yeah. Know, and, uh, but Noah, Noah, for their uh, um, um, forecast says fourteen to twenty-three named storms. Mm-hmm. To, to be named, you have to have top winds of thirty-nine miles per hour or higher. 
Uh, they say eight to fourteen hurricanes. Um, three to seven could be major hurricanes, i.e., cat three, four, or five. Um, so it's it might be a fun summer. Yeah. Uh, you know, it is what it is. Uh, a lot of people have said, "Oh, don't worry about Sarasota. We never get any you know any real weather here." And and yada yada yada. Well, you know, with my luck, uh, uh, this could be the year. Yeah, they, they weren't saying that a few years ago, though, when they had like two of them come through that part of Florida, just right. a few weeks apart. Uh, one last thing out of this WSI, this intrigued me. Their forecasting model suggests that the coastal region, the Atlantic coastal region, from the Outer Banks of North Carolina northward to Maine is twice as likely as normal to experience a hurricane this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, a high atop outlook, lookout point or something like that might not save you, Jack. Yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> all right, not to minimize the dangers and the property damage and whatnot, all right? I like weather, all right? I, you know, you have hurricanes in Florida, I'll be there, all right? Well, I, I want Jim Cantori's job. I've said this before, right? <laughs> I, I want to be the guy who stands out there on the beach with the wind driving you. I actually did that years and years and years and years and years ago when I worked in a small market, very small market TV. Um, we did a little remote for me standing on the beach in a blizzard, and I was just, that was great. I loved that. So, uh, yeah, new media, man. We could do an episode of the podcast from Hurricane. That'd be so cool. Jeb, I didn't know Jack had been a snowman. I was going to say, I didn't know he had these, these uh, suicidal tendencies. Ah, uh, David, I'm coming out there one of these springs to go storm chasing, so uh, get ready. I want to see a tornado. I, want to, I like this stuff. I like this well, stuff. Well, there, there's uh, forecasts for those kind of you – know, the conditions are ripening for those kind of storms uh, in the upper Midwest, uh, actually today. So. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the things that I always enjoy. I, I mean, clearly, there's a lot of things about going to Oshkosh that I enjoy, but one of them is the weather. Uh, um, they have great thunderstorms in uh, in the Midwest, and uh, and that's one of the things I enjoy. God, I like that stuff. That's. I mean, I'll I tell you what. If, if you're that into hurricanes and whatnot, I'll tell you what. Yeah. Uh, you airline your butt down here. I'll give you the keys, and I'll I'll go scooting out of here. I'll go up to Maine. Yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> you're going to be executing Operation Runaway, Runaway, but uh, I'm going right. to be down there going, yes. Okay. Um, enough weather. Neville, you have control of the board. Select a category. Disclaimers for 100. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are appearing as this. Neville. What is private individuals? Correct. Select again. Disclaimers for 200. Their comments do not necessarily reflect these. Neville. What is the opinions of the organizations they work for? Yes. Select again. Disclaimers for 300. Anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously this. Neville. What is very general? That's it. Disclaimers for 400. You should always remember your training, consider your situation, and fly this. Neville. What is the aircraft? Yes. Select. Disclaimers for 500. But you knew this. Robert. What's a lineies? No, Wendy. What is the punchline? No, Neville. What is that? Correct, but you knew that. Congratulations, Neville. You have swept the category. Uh, so apparently the uh, apparently the republic came under grave threat recently 
When, oh, a, no. when a weight shift ultralight, I'm being facetious, an ultralight aircraft, this is a story from, oh, this is from the Wall Street Journal, um, an ultralight aircraft flew within 150 feet of the Statue of Liberty Monday, this is uh, from a story dated June 1st, uh, prompting a police helicopter to escort the aircraft to Westchester County Airport. Etc. 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 Well, what do you bet that that was the first time a trike had ever landed at White Plains? Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, uh, they couldn't find someplace closer. Than I White know Plains? they went all the way to Westchester to. Uh, um, I, I. That's probably where he was. Where he was going by the time they were able to spot his little butt. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. Maybe. This just seems like one of those sto- yet another story where the uh, the security apparatus has overreacted to uh, to uh, a situation. I don't know. What okay, do you have to there, say about there, this? There there are rules about that stuff, and there are some airspace, uh, uh, and I can't quote them off the top. And some of them have changed since right. that collision over the over the uh, uh, the river. Yeah, and this was this the statue is outside of that corridor. Right. Yeah, it's outside of the corridor, but 150 feet laterally, if that's accurate. Uh, I don't think. First off, this wasn't an ultralight. It, it by law because they say later it was a two seat. Right. Uh, and we all know that ultralights are single seat only. So this was light sport or experimental amateur built or something else. But 150 feet no matter what category, is a little closer than, than the FAA likes you to be to physical objects like that. Even if they hadn't chased him off with security uh, and, and, you know, sent the, uh, sent the uh, law enforcement helicopter to follow him to White Plains, that uh, still wasn't the smartest thing a guy could do. No, it, was, it wasn't a very, very yeah. smart thing. David, the um, story says it was an Apollo aircraft monsoon. Are you familiar with that aircraft? Not in the least. The story describes it as being weight shift, um, which makes it not an. L- I mean, makes it smaller, not bigger. Um, there, this is a trike. I'm, I'm I'm sitting here, you know, googling a lot of this stuff while we're talking. Uh, there's a, a couple of different um, news stories out there, other than the Wall Street Journal, and um, this is basically a trike. It's uh, um, it is it is two seats apparently. Um, this one has an N number, so it's not an ultralight. Oh, okay. Um, this particular photo was taken at Sun and Fun a few years back. But uh, so, um, I, so maybe describing it as weight shift is uh, mainstream media not getting it right. And uh, well, no, weight shift is a correct description for a trike. Yeah. No, that's that's right. how the FAA chose to define them <laughs> under the light sport rule. Uh, uh, was weight shift. You know, we've got. Fixed wing, uh, we've got powered parachute, we've got weight shift, uh, and uh, rotorcraft, as in gyros. Uh, so weight shift, because that's how you you that's how you guide, trim, uh, roll, pitch, and and and, and yaw a, a, a trike is with weight shift. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh so we are wagging our finger at this pilot just a little bit. Oh yeah, this is a wag of the finger. Yeah, it, it it's not the smartest thing we've ever seen done with an aircraft. Um, but um, um, the flip side of which is, um, it's not a security threat here. There's probably when there was, it's arguable whether there was a safety threat. Um, but um, 
you know, nothing happened other than, of course, you know, some, some police helicopter crews uh, managed to log some additional time. Yeah. And there's a new name in the security apparatchiks files. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. David, you, uh, you called our attention to 406 uh, ELTs here. Um, so we're in the midst of trying to change over from the old style emergency locator, you know, beacon systems to the new style. And you've called our attention to, uh, to a story here where you, 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 in the notes here, you say the abilities and capabilities just got another, another start on enhancement. Anyways, apparently there's more, even more reason why we should change over to these new uh, devices. Well, they keep enhancing the technology that backs up the 406 megahertz uh, ELTs, which is you know now what what's required in most of the world outside the United States is 406, right? Uh, and 121.5 slash uh, 243 uh, satellites no longer monitor for that. So if you're flying around with an old style ELT. Uh, you're really rolling the dice if you need it in terms of anybody picking you up. Well, in terms of everybody picking up by the satellites. Um, so this, this new development is uh, a, a, a feature on a satellite, and they're adding it to more satellites as they go up, and a ground station that will get a relay uh, almost instantaneously of the data burst from a 406 ELT, and it will relay a GPS position so that almost immediately, like within minutes, uh, search and rescue people have a starting point with which to work on finding you. Uh, rather than it requiring a couple of uh, several minutes of satellite hits, this is even without a GPS data package in the 406 uh, broadcast signal. Mm-hmm. That's the hot setup. You can buy these now for about a thousand bucks with their own built-in GPS. Uh, and when the uh, 406 ELT is triggered, it broadcasts in its data pack the identification of the aircraft, who owns it, phone number, address, and the Latin long information from that GPS position. Uh, it's like narrowing down the search area from uh, say ten square mile or a ten mile square, hundred square miles, for a one twenty one point five, down to about the size of a baseball field. Right. In terms of the GPS enabled, well, this new feature will pinpoint the location of the originating signal well enough to give a lat long to searchers, even without the uh, uh, GPS data pack included in the signal. So mm-hmm. that that moves up. The, uh, the accuracy of the originating search uh, theoretically should shorten the time it takes them to find you and save your butt. Yeah, okay. When you run out of gas and land, make an off-field land. Yeah, when you run out of gas. Yeah, and, you know, when, when 406s, you know, were selected worldwide, ICAO standard and all that stuff, uh, you know, there was a lot of, uh, of moaning and groaning here in the States that, Pilots uh, didn't want to be forced to adopt these, adapt these things. Uh, uh, first off, nobody was making them, and now that they're making them, they're way too expensive, and on and on and on. And those arguments have very, very quickly uh, pretty much fallen away. 
you can get a non-GPS-enabled 406 ELT, which is a huge improvement over that 121.5 that you're carrying around, uh, for six or seven hundred bucks now. Yeah. Now that's about two to three times more than replacing your 121 with a new 121. But the batteries last longer. Uh, most of them have five or six year battery lives, which reduces your overall cost. You could save the difference in battery costs in about six years. But I look at the higher cost as a relatively low cost one time insurance policy uh, on finding me in a big ass hurry mm-hmm. if I need it. Yeah. Uh, for about a thousand bucks, you can get them with their own GPS built in. If you've got a GPS on board your aircraft, uh, for about a thousand to fifteen hundred bucks, you can get units that will take a signal from your onboard GPS, and will data pack and broadcast that last position uh, available when the ELT triggers, uh, and works just as well. So, uh, the costs have come down. The options are multiple now. Uh, the arguments against doing it. Uh, I think are kind of pound foolish yeah. when it's your life, maybe your family's life. Uh, personally, I, I, I want I want somebody looking for me in, as quickly as possible, and it is in as small a, a search area as possible. Yeah, I want them to get there before I crash. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> that's the ideal case. Yeah, yeah, um, be waiting for you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, welcome to welcome to the party. Um, yeah, I, I will confess I still have a 121 in my airplane, and in fact, um, uh, I have a new battery I need to put in it um, as, as part of the, the regular rotation of, of batteries and whatnot. Uh, if that ELT ever died, um, yeah, I would I would probably go the full boat and get the. Um, uh, I, I certainly get some kind of a GPS thing. I have the the 530 in the panel running the cable to. Um, um, the, the aft cabin where the where the ELT is mounted, um, after I should say the tail cone where the ELT is mounted, uh, is not an insignificant task, but it is something I can do, and the shop doesn't have to fool with, and and then you know let them you know do the connection and make everything legal. Um, I'd probably end up though with with the um, the built-in GPS type of model where uh, you don't even have to do that, and uh, um, it just makes sense. The flip side of which is. <clears throat> Um, if you're um, flying, you know, within 50 miles, you never go beyond 50 miles to get your $100 hamburger, 50 miles from your home plate. Um, and uh, everyone, you, 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 people know where you are and what you're doing and when you'll be back and, and things like that. It, it starts to get a little fuzzier on the cost-benefit ratio side of things. Uh, if you never go anywhere other than IFR, um, um, you know, by definition, people know where you are, uh, and if if you're on the frequency when something quote bad unquote happens, um, then you know you'll you'll be a lot better off than if you were just droning along and without talking to anybody. And when when um, the air, aircraft uh, soiled the bed, um, there are you know some cost benefit analyses that have to be uh, uh, performed here, and each pilot, each uh, op- operator uh, has to do this on his or her own. Um, can't can't tell you what to do, won't do it. Um, but for the money, um, for uh, um, um, the peace of mind, etc., the uh, the 406 technology is just light years ahead of the the 121.5 technology. And uh, 
I, I can't, you know, I can't see uh, buying um, either brand new or, or as a replacement a 125 ELT at this day. It just doesn't make any sense. I would put as much money into a 125, 121.5 ELT today as I would put in a Loran. <laughs> okay. Well, you so you wouldn't even replace the batteries, David? If you had nope. an airplane, you'd rip it out. Next time the battery's needed to go or next annual, uh, it would get replaced. Okay. Uh, really? Yeah. All right. Well, that's the point. For, 20, for 25 bucks, I'll replace the battery uh, um, um, given, given the way I use the airplane. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Um, so one of our favorite air show performers, Sean Tucker, has announced that he's rolling out a new uh, airplane, a new uh, a performance airplane this year, uh, the Challenger 3 biplane, uh, which looks a lot like, well, I don't know, the picture we're seeing here may not be the 3, but uh, uh, the Challenger 3 biplane, which uh, can do more, more, more. Uh, it's just like... <laughs> Um, well, you know, I didn't think there was any part of the flight envelope left short of supersonic. Sean D had not already explored. Yeah, I know. It says uh, Tucker has added more maneuvers to his routine, including somersaults and multiple cartwheels. And there's more to come. And Shucker, th- th- this is the part I find most interesting. Quote here from Sean Tucker. He says, I-, I still have so much to learn. It's like learning to fly all over again. It's so much fun. And then it says he has flown the airplane only about 200 times so far. Okay. Um, which just that, that phrase caught me. It's like only 200 flights. Uh, he says that uh, he's quoted as saying, maybe with about 2,000 flights, uh, he'll have a handle on its full range of capabilities. I guess this is actually one of his PR people speaking. Um, so, uh, but he says the airplane is about, quote unquote, 30% better uh, than, than the others he's flown. So, uh, the biplane features carbon fiber flying tail inspired by uh, tails used on remote control model aircraft. It says eight ailerons. What's that all about? How do you have eight ailerons? Do you guys know anything about this? You have a lot of hinges. I, I guess. I, no, I'm serious here. Eight ailerons. So does that are, are they separately controlled? I, I was imagining a situation where they were variably controlled so that in different places along the wing, the aileron was deflecting a different amount, and that might give you some extra added control. I don't know. That was just my fantasy. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no. actually. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Two different answers. Go ahead. Yeah, all right. Okay. David, you think it does make sense? Well, yeah, something that's progressive is like uh, some high-speed transport. So when you move, uh, when, you, when you provide roll input, you get spoilers first and then ailerons. Uh, and the spoilers are a little bit finer. So it's it's not outside the bounds of my imagination to conceive a uh, an eight aileron system on on this biplane, where you've got two on each wing, and where the you know one set comes in later than the other set. Uh, I just don't know for sure. I guess we'll find out when we get to look at it up close and personal at AirVenture. Uh, four air, four ailerons on biplanes. That's that's long been a uh, high performance enhancement because. If you look at a lot of uh, old trainers like uh, Stearman, they originally only had, you know, two ailerons. Uh-huh. Jeb, they didn't wanna... have one on each wing. Jeb, you want to add yeah. anything to that? Early Pitts uh, specials, which are, of course, biplanes, only had two ailerons. And then when it started to get, you know, more competitive, they added four ailerons to it. Um, 
why uh, the Challenger 3 uh, has eight ailerons, um, I don't know. Uh, maybe there's a, a structural thing there. <clears throat> Strikes me that for simplicity and, and, uh, and uh, weight savings and, and things like that, that that four ailerons would, would be the way to go. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm sure there's a good uh, uh, operational or engineering reason for them to go to, to, to eight ailerons. On it, it may well be so that he can turn it up to 11. And, uh, well, that may be the case. <laughs> that, 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 well, may be the case. Yeah. Uh, and, and for Sean Tucker to turn it up to 11, you know, I want video. That's oh, right. absolutely. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. That's going to be a pretty I'm neat. I'm going to be out of the office and watching that. That's right. Yeah, that's I right. Yeah. Um, but as far as the progressive uh, uh, versus linear thing goes, um, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe uh, there's a reason that he, uh, maybe there's a reason that this is progressive. I, I, um, we don't know that it's progressive. I, we, I don't we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, it, it's, it's, yeah. I can see um, some kind of an argument where um, you want a progressive aileron uh, deflection schedule um, based on the speed of the airplane. Uh, at low speeds, you want more deflection to have the same roll rate. At high speeds, you want less deflection to get that roll rate. That makes um, sense. Uh, but I, I don't see, um, in my thinking, I think I would rather have a linear uh, uh, aileron deflection schedule um, so that I know, irrespective of, of the aircraft's speed, uh, what my, uh, my roll input is going to result, right. uh, what, what is going to be the result of my aileron input. So I, I don't know. I mean, it would be very interesting to find out a little bit more about this, and, and maybe we can take a homework assignment on this. Yeah. Yeah. But it intrigued me that one of the uh, design changes from from uh, Challenger 2 to Challenger 3 involves redesigning the cockpit seating so that uh, Sean D. can better uh, withstand the G-loads that his act produces. Uh, and it doesn't sound like a lot, but this line where he says... He can practice four times a day instead of two. What little bit of very high G, very high intensity flying I've done uh, <laughs> crystallized in my mind the, uh, the the impact that those G-forces have on you sure. over time. So the ability to double your practice times at, at full boat loads, uh, to me, sounds just remarkable. Yeah. Uh, it must have gone really supine, uh, like some of the more modern jet fighters that seat the pilot right, in a more right. fine position. For the same no, you, you make a really good point. Um, I know at at uh, Acrocamp a few weeks back, um, the uh, watching the students fly three, uh, and admittedly, although it's the same kind of flying, it's a different scale, obviously. Um, but watching the uh, students fly three sorties a day, they would be pretty ragged by the end. And the instructors were actually doing six sorties a day, um, and they were definitely cooking ragged by the end. Um, so, yeah, um, if anything I was you can doing, do to minimize the, the, the wear and tear. Yeah, if I was doing four flights a day at, at the G-forces that Sean Tucker likely sustains, I think at the end of the fourth one they would have put me in traction. Yeah, really, really. <laughs> 
Well, this is the story in AvWeb. According to the story in AvWeb, uh, Sean will be flying the new Challenger 3 uh, on June 26th and 27th in at the Rhode Island National Guard Air Show in Quonset, Rhode Island. That's the show I went to a few years back where I saw the Blue Angels. Uh, don't know if the Blues are there this year, but uh, fun show. And then he'll be at the Dayton Air Show July 17 and 18, and then, of course, at uh, EAA AirVenture July 26th through August 1st. And then it says, plus at least 10 more shows around the U.S. throughout the season. So, cool new airplane. Have to check it out. Have to check it out. Finally, before we do shout-outs here, uh, I want to just call attention to something that hopefully is the beginning of a trend. David, your friends there at, uh, at uh, oh, geez, I'm blanking on the name of the FBO that's named after the beer. Um, oh, Yingling. Yingling, thank you. It's not named after the beer. I just think of it that way. Uh, th- uh, so is it them that have announced that they are putting a rental Skycatcher on the line? Yes, it is. They're... Uh they they have a, a a subset Kansas Aviation Inc. Uh, that is uh, going to be putting the first apparently uh, Cessna 162 Skycatcher up for flight instruction and rental and transition training uh, at ninety eight bucks an hour wet. Yeah, that's a pretty decent price. I, I hope that's a long term price and not just an introductory price. Uh, it sounds like a long-term price. Uh, there was nothing in the uh, the release information sent to me by, by, by my good buddy Dave Franson, and uh, and I double-checked the uh, the company's website, and there's no mention of this being an introductory rate. And knowing approximately what they get for their G1000 uh, and conventional six-pack 172s. Uh, I, I think 98 is going to be a, a good spot for them to stay for a, a, a long time because, first off, it's below that magic three-digit level right. that will get a lot of people to go, well, I thought these things were supposed to be cheap. Uh, and, uh, hey, it's a brand-new airplane. Uh, and it, it's competitive on, on a level that... Uh, you can look at it and say, "Well, okay, I can get my flight instruction at ninety-eight, or I can pay forty-two bucks or fifty-two bucks an hour more for two more seats that won't teach me a bloody thing more." Yeah, yeah, basically. So, I mainly wanted to call attention to this because uh, I know from the forums and from talking with other pilots that uh, there aren't an awful lot of places around the country that are doing rentals on LSAs. And uh, and so uh, I'm, you know, more than happy to promote any that do. Um, as a matter of fact, if anybody knows of FBOs around the country that are renting LSAs, um, whether it's a Skycatcher or whatever, um, let us know. Send us an email or put something in the forums, and we'll uh, we'll repeat it so that the word can get out. Yeah, well, that's was, interesting because I, my, I, I'm just not sure that that perception is accurate. I I, I tend to think that. Uh, uh, LSAs are, are relatively uh, uh, widely available, um, but I'll, I'll I'll take a homework assignment on, on, on the rental line. I, if if I'm yeah. mistaken, that would be terrific. But uh, my sense is that they're hard to find, um, and uh, they're, they're still not as easy to find as you know the the the, the venerable old 172 or, or, or PA 28 uh, Cherokee. Uh, that's changing, and like Jeb said, there's more out there than we realize. There's also still some misguided or misplaced information about what you can do in these airplanes in terms of your flight training. Uh, And I still hear the periodic story from somebody that wanted to get a light sport and was 
you know, kind of nudged toward the regular syllabus and the bigger airplane because that's what the flight school had to teach when right. somebody else in town on the other side of town had a light sport and the uh, FBO thought that they could capture some business rather than be a nice guy and say, we don't do it, but somebody else does. They didn't get the business, by the way. Right. Yeah. So uh, that was pound foolish on their part. Yeah. Jeb, were you looking to add something to that? No, I, I just, I mean, I can... I, if I was in, if I was in the D.C. area, I know where to go to to rent an LSA, get flight training in an LSA. Here in Florida, I know where to go to get uh, flight training and okay, training. Okay, well, LSA. quickly, where? But well, I mean, there's uh, I believe there's an operator at Sarasota, uh, uh, the big airport at Sarasota. I know there's an operator at uh, at Venice with with the LSAs, uh, or at least one LSA. Uh, I, I know of another one, uh, Fort Myers, uh, or Pun- I'm sorry, Punta Gorda, which is just down the road. Uh, Sebring. Uh, Sebring, I'm sure. Oh yeah, I'm well, sure. Well, Sebring's a special case, yeah. but yeah. Well, but I mean, we're we're talking. You know, just pick a pick a geographic area. You can rent uh, a Remos, Jack, where 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 you, you've rented them before. Um, I I don't know. I, I don't I don't think it's that big a deal. But you know, I'm certainly willing to be educated. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And and Cessna pilot centers. Uh, you know, in case people haven't caught on, Cessna's got quote-unquote, more than a 1,000 skycatchers on order. And once they get their production, the hiccups resolved and start to produce these in the volume that they want to and plan to, you're going to see them show up uh, in pretty good numbers. I'm expecting that's still going to be a year out before we're going to see it. But Cessna Pilot Centers are going to be offering these for rent because that's part of their program now. Cessna has its own light sport uh, uh, aircraft and its own sport pilot training program developed by John and Martha King out at King School. So, uh, you know, where there's a Cessna Pilot Center, uh, if not now, within the next year or so, there's going to be a skycatcher for rent for yeah. flight instruction and general flying. So it's going to get bigger. Cool. Uh. I was waiting for the phone to stop ringing, <laughs> and I'm thinking, keep talking, Dave, keep talking. I'm waiting for the, there we go, it stopped ringing. Uh, I got to fix that. I got to fix that. Um, shout-outs. What's going on? Anybody got any shout-outs? I got a couple here, but uh, anybody have any that aren't on the list? No? All right, while you're thinking about it, I'll go first. Quick shout-out to our friends at uh, the Airplane Geeks podcast, uh, who have just reached uh, episode 100. Congratulations. We know a little bit about uh, how significant a milestone that is, and uh, uh, not an easy thing to do. Uh, So it says a lot about their dedication and their devotion to uh, aviation and podcasting, and we congratulate uh, Rob and Max and David and Dan and everybody who's been involved with the Airplane Geeks uh, podcast over their first 100 episodes. And uh, uh, you can check out the Airplane Geeks at, at uh, airplanegeeks.com, uh, coincidentally. So, uh, fun and where podcast. is Airplane Geeks based? Uh, you would ask me that, wouldn't you? They're on the internet, man. I don't know. They're out in the ether. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I don't know the answer to that. About us, let's see here. I mean, chances are they're everywhere, right? Like we are, all right? We got David, who is in apparently. No, see, I'm not going to try and summarize this. There's a lot of information. Go to airplanegeeks.com. You can learn all about these guys and check out their podcast. 
the other shout out I have here is um, oh here's my shout out so um, people who pay attention to such things and I don't know why you would but um, in that I haven't been traveling as much over the last couple of months as I did for a while well that's about to change I'm about to start going on another traveling uh, for work binge here uh, and uh, next week I'm leaving for Las Vegas um, long-time listeners will remember that we've recorded episodes the last couple summers while I was in Las Vegas, and we will likely do that again. Um, I made a note to myself last year uh, that it would be cool to hook up with some locals out there who could tell me a little bit more about general aviation in the Las Vegas area. I spent some time sniffing around the fences of some of the airports out there, but uh, you know, you just kind of make you know. And there's the whole CIA air you know airline thing, and the whole you know Area 51 shuttle, and all the helicopters, all this stuff that you kind of look at from afar and make guesses about. But I was thinking it'd be cool to find somebody who knows something. So um, I, I'm just sort of sending out the word, asking whether there are any listeners uh, out in the Las Vegas area who uh, would be willing to hook up with me for a few hours one day and give me a little tour of, uh, of the GA operations, particularly at, uh, at McCarran, the big airport, and or at uh, North Las Vegas, which, as I understand it, is the other big GA operation out there. Um, Henderson is a third. Um, is it okay so uh if you're uh, if you're out in the las vegas area and i'm going to be there for like 10 days so there's plenty of opportunities uh and we could get together and uh, i'll buy you a beer and you can tell me all about ga in the las vegas area send uh send me email to uh, podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com or put something in the forums and uh I'll, I'll see it there that would be great any other shout outs uh, I was just going to give a quick shout and congratulatory pat to the uh, Washington Post reporter who walked away from the uh, oh, Stearman incident at, 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 at Washington National Airport uh, earlier this week. Uh, you know, if you're going to make a splash arriving at, at an airport, yeah. uh, there's few where you're going to get more cameras or a bigger crowd than National Airport when you're arriving as part of a group of eight steermen to promote a new movie. So um, to that reporter, you're experiencing what we all know about general aviation. Most of the time when something bad happens, you walk away. Well, um, that's where I was. That was going to be my, uh, my shout out. But uh, mine's going to be a dissent. Um, first of all, the, um, the shout out is to the pilot, um, whose, uh, name is Mike Trushel, uh, lives in the DC area and Virginia suburbs. And he apparently owns the steerman in question. This was a, um, uh, for lack of a better term, a, a publicity event, uh, designed to promote a new, uh, IMAX film called Legends of Flight. And, uh, apparently they were doing this over and around the DC area, doing some filming, uh, of, of the uh, of a formation flight of, of eight Stearmans. Um Mike, uh, I don't know Mike Trushel. Um, uh, he was landing at, uh, at National Airport on runway one. Uh, when the airplane touched down, from all appearances, uh, both video and, and uh, um, um, witness reports, the uh, brakes were locked. Uh, when the airplane touched down, uh, immediately upon touching down, there's there's smoke from the tires, and then the airplane pitches over uh, nose first. <clears throat> um, there was a Washington Post reporter in the front cockpit. Uh, actually, uh, I'm sure she was she was filming, uh, uh, videoing uh, the the flight and the landing and all this kind of thing. Her name is Ashley Halsey, um, 
and uh, everybody's fine. Everybody walked away. Airplane, of course, is, is uh, slightly worse for wear. Um, generally speaking, steermans don't have parking brakes. And uh, generally speaking, I, and I don't know this particular airplane's configuration, but you generally have a full set of dual controls in a steerman, including rudder pedals and including brakes. The scuttlebutt is, and, and I've seen some email floating around that uh, um, um, this is, has, in fact, been verified. I cannot independently verify this myself, so I, this is, is worth every penny you're paying for it. But the, the scuttlebutt is that the reporter, the, uh, Ms. Ashley Halsey, uh, indeed admitted later on to having her feet on the brakes Ooh. when the airplane touched down. Uh, she was a Washington Post reporter. Uh, they, the Post had scheduled an online chat with the reporter uh, on, the, uh, on the newspaper's website for you know, later that day or the next day or whatever. This was, what, Tuesday, I guess. Uh, today's the uh, today's the eleventh. This was yesterday, I guess. Actually, um, yesterday morning, um, that chat was canceled. Uh, apparently, at the last minute. Uh huh. Um, and you know, there's there's a lot of speculation as to why, and, and there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not um, uh, this reporter actually did admit to having her feet on the brakes at touchdown. Um, no one really knows right now. We'll kind of wait and see what the NTSB has to say about this. Of course, the NTSB made a huge deal. Um, put out a press release, in fact, that they were going to be investigating this quote accident unquote at a National Airport. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did, you know, and it did shut down the main runway there at National for an hour, hour and a half, something like that. And and okay, um, um, big big news story there locally in D.C. But there's there's more going on here, and uh, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised that it finally will come out that uh, a passenger uh, was conflicting uh, on the controls as the airplane touched down. That's interesting. I, uh, ouch. Yeah, I'm about yeah, to big, big time. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> that didn't mute. Um, so I was, <laughs> I was reaching for the button as the sneeze overtook me. Didn't quite make it. Um, so uh, I was actually holding the story. Um, this is interesting stuff, and I'm glad we talked about it. Um, I was going to push that story to next week because turns out that James Winbrandt uh, was present um, uh, for this whole thing. And uh, I don't know if he was a passenger in one of the other steermen or, uh, or if he was just on the ground, but uh, he was apparently involved somehow, some way. And, uh, and I was curious to hear what his, uh, and, and I still will be, we'll, we'll get him on the podcast sometime soon to uh, give us his eyewitness account of what happened that day. So uh, uh, all very interesting. Yeah. Any other yeah. shout out? Any other shout-outs? One, one other factor involved here, just, just in case um, uh, our listeners have forgotten or, ne- or never knew, um, as a rule, general aviation aircraft are not allowed at, at Washington National Airport yeah. as, a, as a, an overreaction to... Uh, and now not, we see uh, why. And, well, and now we see why. Um, it, it, there was a program set up... Um, um, by the TSA a, a few years back that allowed uh, this is the DC Access Standard Security Program, or DASSP, um, that has a, a network of uh, some 20-some-odd airports around the country that are, that are known as gateway airports, where uh, passengers and crew destined for National Airport go through security, uh, airline-style security, and in fact, there is a... Uh, an armed security officer is supposed to be on board for any such flights in and out of, of DCA. Um, 
it's obvious that in this instance, um, none of that uh, um, standard security program protocols, none of those were, were actually complied with in this instance because it's a two-seat airplane, you have a pilot, you have a Washington Post reporter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and neither one of them are, are probably packing. So I mean, this was obviously done under a waiver um, from, from those rules. Um, just, just kind of a, a reminder that, um, A, you're not going to be able to get in and out of DCA uh, on a whim, and B, that there is still a lot of security nonsense out there, that, uh, especially around the D.C. area, that uh, uh, people may have forgotten about. Yeah, yeah, okay. Any other shout-outs? No? Okay, time to stick a fork in this one. Dave Higdon, uh, it's always good talking with you. Dave is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Avbuyer.com, DaveHigdon.biz, AEA.net, sundry other uh, reputable and disreputable publications, websites. And Jeb Burnside, good talking with you, too. Uh, Jeb is a freelance aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, among other things. Where can people find you on the net? Oh, jeburnside.com, aviationsafetymagazine.com, aea.net also, and, uh, you know, coming soon to a police blotter near you. That's right. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com, at uh, my personal non-aviation blog, and c.blogspot.com, and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Uh, Thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earl, and the many other listeners who have created the show opening disclaimer clips. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, you can view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? You want to live long and prosper, go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. That's right. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. TTFM. TTFM.